Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. That's when you know you found someone really special. When you can just shut the f*** up for a minute and comfortably share silence. Welcome back. You are listening to Three Guys in a Flick. This is where we review the good, the bad, and the absurd. Tonight's episode, Pulp Fiction. Beware spoilers. Coming to you from Jackrabbit Slims, my name is Don. And to my right, we have our man in Amsterdam. This is the comic book guy, John. Yo. And to my left, we have our guy from Inglewood. This is the professor, Ken. Good evening. And making his first public appearance, the Gimp. This is Danny. <laughs> hey guys, thanks for having me. Yeah, well, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Yeah, glad to have you. Glad to have you. We'll st- we'll see if you feel the same at the end of the show. We shall see. Uh, we are talking about Pulp Fiction, nineteen ninety four. This movie comes to us uh, as a recommendation from Danny. So, hey, uh, Danny, why Pulp Fiction? Oh man, Pulp Fiction is one of my absolute favorite movies. And after doing a couple rewatches, it might be my absolute favorite movie ever. Uh, it has some of my favorite actors. It has some of the best sequences in film. I think anybody could ever asked to, <laughs> to have in front of them. I mean, it's often studied. I've seen it on a list of greatest films of all time. Uh, I read someone say that you get intoxicated by it. And that was absolutely my feeling during this rewatch. I'm still intoxicated. Uh, I could re- watch this movie anytime. It's beautiful. All right. That's awesome. You both have seen it, I take it? Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh-huh. Did you see it in the theater, Professor? Uh-huh. Did you like it in the theater? Uh-huh. Comic book guy, did you see it in the theater? I did not. I actually had to rent it the first time. Shocker. Um, I, I remember seeing it uh, back in 94, and yeah, I mean... Fucking Pulp Fiction. This right? was one of those movies that I had heard about, uh, but I had not seen. And I think it wasn't until after I really got into the Kill Bill series that I decided, I think I need to go watch Pulp Fiction. And loved it. Wait, are you telling me that Kill Bill was your first experience to Quentin Tarantino? It was not, but I didn't realize at the time that I had already popped my Quentin, or my Quentin Tarantino cherry when I watched True Romance, which is one of my favorite movies too. But that he didn't direct it. No, he but that, write it. that was one of the movies he wrote. Right, but he didn't make the movie. So well, you it's not have... really one of his movies. Yeah, but you didn't clarify whether he wrote I, d- I didn't think I had to. So you're saying it, one of the nine. Yeah. It was, it was the first of the nine that I had seen. That's And that's where my question was. Yeah. So Released on October 14, 1994, Pulp Fiction was directed by Quentin Tarantino. Screenplay by Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery. It stars John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, Uma Thurman, Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Amanda Plummer, Ving Rhames, Christopher Walken, Bruce Willis, and a bunch of other people. How'd this movie do, Don? Uh, This movie was made for a modest $8 million, and it brought in $214 million. 
Uh, I think it's one of the most successful independent movies of all time. I heard some people say it was maybe the first independent movie to really kick off uh, of that phase of Hollywood where smaller movies would get picked up. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, I mean, you're you're in the uh, almost mid-90s, and so, I mean, you have uh, Kevin Smith coming out. You have Quentin Tarantino showing up, Robert Rodriguez. I mean, all of these directors would go on and, you know, become somebody's and it all started with the independent flavor one of the things i think is most impressive about this movie and about quentin tarantino's casting is the fact that he took two people who were pretty much on their way out of hollywood Uh, bruce willis had had a string of bad movies and so nobody was really that interested in him and john travolta after look who's talking and all that nobody was even thinking of him puts them in this movie and just relaunches both their careers uh, I don't know if he relaunched Bruce Willis's career. Bruce Willis will always be Bruce Willis, right? Uh, John Travolta, a hundred percent. And you know, he made a he made Travolta fun again. And when you saw this movie, you know, Pulp Fiction is one of those films where you either love it or you hate it. You know, there really is no in between that I've found, and I know a lot of people that do not like this movie, and I get it. I don't agree with it, but I get it. But yeah, this movie, this movie was kind of a game changer. I've heard uh, multiple statements from Travolta saying as such, he even went so far as to say this movie gave him his soul back. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you can see it on screen since we're here. Let's get into this cast a little bit. You have uh, John Travolta, which we just talked about Samuel L. Jackson, Jules Winfield. Does Samuel L. Jackson have the career he does today if he doesn't make Pulp Fiction? You know, he has, he has a lot of, uh, he has like over 200 uh, movies under his belt, but I got to say that I, I think that this really solidified him on the map because before this, he didn't necessarily have a prominent place in a movie. And whenever he shows up in a movie now, he sticks out like a, store, like a sore thumb. He is Samuel Jackson. And I, I would think that it's partially because of Pulp Fiction. Yeah, it yeah. feels like this movie created that Samuel L. Jackson character that we know and we see in all the other movies. Yeah, and it really is his swagger. And let's be quite honest, it's the way he says motherfucker, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's Samuel L. Jackson. Jackie Brown also helped as well. Yes, yes. And, um, you know, spoiler alert, I like Jackie Brown better than Pulp Fiction. Ooh. Maybe we should open this up a little bit because what we're talking about, maybe not everybody is necessarily aware of and Quentin Tarantino and his movies, as he puts it. There are nine Quentin Tarantino movies and he is, uh, he's, he's very upfront about this. And didn't he say that he only wants to do 10? Yeah, yeah he, that's what I heard. He's going to retire at 10 and go to just writing movies. He is not. Oh, and producing. He will not direct another movie after the 10th one. Unless one of those films, and this is just what I hear, uh, unless one of those films was a Star Trek, and then that wouldn't count in his uh, movie catalog. Oh, I'd love to see him direct. It, it was, I, I'm pretty sure it was close, but I mean, he's not doing four now, but he, it was close. I mean, they were in talks. Has and he, I would have, yeah, fuck, uh, Star Trek Quentin Tarantino movie? Fuck yeah. Has he hinted about the 10th movie yet? Because I know he's talked for years about doing another Kill Bill. Yeah, well, uh, maybe Kill Bill 3. So his so his first one is Reservoir Dogs in 92, and then in 94 you have Pulp Fiction, and then Jackie Brown is 97, and then you have both of the Kill Bills. What is that, 03, 04? Yes. And then after that, then it's Death Proof, at ninety at oh seven, Inglorious Bastards oh nine, 
And then after that, what's after that one? Django Unchained, oh, baby. Right. 12, Django. 2012. Yeah, and then The Hateful Eight in 15, and then Once Upon a Time in America. In Hollywood. Oh, yeah, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <clears throat> Which is in America, just so we're clear. <laughs> Not America. Not America. America. Well, since we're here and we're doing this, uh, Professor, top three QT movies. Pulp Fiction on top, Kill Bill number two, and my third one. Mm, I'm torn. I and Glorious Bastards. Uh, and just to clarify, Kill Bill Volume One. one. Okay, thank uh-huh. you. So, Pulp Fiction, Kill Bill Volume One, and Inglorious Bastards. Mm-hmm. Comic book guy. Do the Kill Bills count as one or two? They're two. So I'm going to go with the two Kill Bills, then Pulp Fiction. Which is your number one? Uh, it would be the second Kill Bill movie. Over the first one? Yep. Wow. And your second? The second would be the first Kill Bill movie, followed by Pulp Fiction. Okay. Okay. Surprising. Okay. Okay. Uh, young sir? Uh, three, two, one. Uh, three is got to be Inglorious Bastards, two Reservoir Dogs, and number one, of course, Pulp Fiction. Oh, that's, yeah. Great. Great. And you, Don? Uh, number one is Jackie Brown. Number two is Pulp Fiction. And number three would be Kill Bill, Volume One. So, going on with this cast, you have Uma Thurman. Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth. I mean, so many actors in this film. What do you guys think of Uma's performance? You know, I'm, I'm not, even though I love the Kill Bill movies, I'm not always a huge fan of hers. I thought she did a great job in this movie, playing the, you know, the little character, a little bit that she was in. Yeah. I found her intoxicating. My eyes were locked on her in the uh, theater and watching her. She was so captivating, and I have to say that I felt a little awkward because I'm sitting next to my wife, and I'm having feelings for Uma's <laughs> character up on the screen. Oh, dear. Yeah, but you got to know, as soon as she's introduced to us, she's trouble. Oh, with a capital T. <laughs> with a capital T. Uh, but she is very mesmerizing. Uh, 100% agree with that. She's beautiful. I mean, the dialogue delivery is just it's stunning. It's stunning. Intoxicating is a great word for it. Yeah. And, and all of the dialogue in this, it just kind of just runs off their tongue. You know, it just feels so natural. So snappy. Yeah. Christopher Walken. Always one of my favorites. Yeah. He, he just delivers in every movie he's in. Yeah. For him and his, and his little bit that he gives <laughs> and that ridiculous story. Oh my gosh. It's a long little bit. Yeah. It, it is hilarious having him give that story to a little kid. And I, and I got to say, I think one of the funniest parts that I always laugh when I hear it is when he says a pilot named Wanaki. <laughs> a man he'd never met before in his life. <laughs> I just, I'm just surprised he can deliver with a straight face about the watch up his butt. Oh my God. That's so funny. And it's funny that you say butt and not ass. I am a huge fan. His voice, again, it's iconic. Uh, it's funny because I grew up with him almost playing like farcical roles. Like he had been this famous actor for a while. And I mean, my first memory of him is probably on SNL talking about golden fleece diapers. <laughs> so <laughs> um, to see him in such a role that is comedic, it's very funny. Uh, it's Is it all one take? Except for maybe one... S- quick shot back at butch when he turns around to start talking to there's him. a there's a couple of different camera shots in there and it there, there's a there's a wide shot and there's a tight shot and there's a there, there's an there's a very uh up close shot where uh, the background is very fuzzed out and you, and you can just barely make out mother and and then you have a medium shot you know 
to end it. And then, of course, we have uh, really at the time the only name uh, that actually got them additional funds was Bruce Willis. Yep. You know, and I thought Bruce Willis uh, was fantastic in this role. Butch is one of my favorite characters for sure, and I thought he just fucking nailed it. You would like Butch. Of course I would. He's a bully. Am I a bully? I've listened to your podcast. I see how you treat your friends. <laughs> yeah, we, we'll let the listeners determine that one. Was he your favorite? Who, Butch? Yeah. No, he wasn't my favorite. Who was your favorite? Oh, we're going to do this now. My Ooh, favorite character. Um, it would probably have to be uh, our man in Inglewood, Jules Winfield. For me, Jules is fun. I mean, uh, Vincent is fun, but again, I got to go Jules, number one. Danny, who's your favorite character? Uh, I think Mia Wallace is my favorite character. Really interesting. She's fascinating. She, there's multiple layers to her. I can't quite figure it out after seeing this movie over a dozen times exactly what she's thinking at different times throughout her scenes. Uh, so there, there's like an, a little bit of mystery to her character. Professor? Jules. Jules. Yeah, very much so. His personality, the, the way that he carries his character on screen is, is so impressive his conviction to uh, his his character just makes it look effortless, yes. and and having that dialogue to back it up, and then he brings the attitude with it that is needed for this character. He shines. He shines so brightly. Yeah. And Travolta, you know, Vincent's good too, but uh, yeah, I, I, mm, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, a close second for me would be uh, Winston Wolf. Uh, great, very, great very, very brief, but I mean, very Im- impactful, you know, uh, it says Harvey Cattell actually convinced his friend, Bruce Willis to take the part. Oh, really? Uh, Willis was a huge fan of reservoir dogs. Uh, he worked on the film for, Oh, Bruce Willis only worked on the film for 18 days. That's short. Yeah. So Pulp Fiction was nominated for best picture, best director, best actor, Travolta, Best Supporting Actor, Samuel L. Jackson. Best Supporting Actress, Uma Thurman. Original Screenplay and Film Editing. It wins for Best Original Screenplay. Uh, I'd be curious to know what else was nominated for editing that year. because I didn't have time to look it up. Nah, that's okay. When you guys first saw Pulp Fiction, did it make sense? Honestly, the first time I saw it, I was really confused. Because I couldn't figure out, you know, like, I thought maybe the the scene in the beginning with them robbing it, and then I didn't re- you know recognize the dialogue at the end. So I thought, is this a second robbery? Is this the same robbery? Um, I originally thought it was going in some kind of order, and then Vincent alive, Vincent dead, Vincent alive again. Uh, it was really confusing to me, Professor. It worked as soon as as soon as we have the. Uh the, the bit towards the end of the movie where uh, the wolf is having them change into the clothes, then it clicked. It's like, oh, and then from there, then everything fell into place afterwards, and that's why they look like that, and that's why there's these sudden clothes changes. That's why Vincent is back into the movie again, right. and it all clicked, and then oh, we're back in the diner. Oh, this is awesome. Yeah, and then it kind of just blew your mind, right? Mind blown. I was pretty young when I saw this movie. I was probably nine or ten years old. What? Uh, yeah, I was young. My parents told me I was never allowed to see this film. It was extremely hyped up. Uh, we had parental controls growing up, so my parents would lock all the explicit content, but I knew the code. So one day, I sat my ass down on the couch. Young Danny watched Pulp Fiction in its entirety. It was. I mean, I was strapped into a roller coaster. I had no idea 
what I was looking at, but I was absolutely mesmerized. Oh my gosh. That's awesome. <laughs> it warped my fragile little mind. Now you said he grew up with your son, right? Yes. So was his son sitting next to you? No, we didn't meet till a few years later when uh, uh, I was further decayed. Uh, have you watched it here? Did you and Keenan ever watch it together? I don't think we ever watched it together. But I will say that every single new Quentin Tarantino movie that has come out since we were friends, we've gone and seen together in the movie theater. It's our tradition. Oh, right on. Oh. So it makes what a, me happy. What about you? The first time I saw it, did it did it make sense? Yeah, and it was uh, when you see them in the clothes that I put two and two together. Because I remember the first time um, we see them in that clothes in the beginning of the film, I'm thinking, well, that's where they changed. And they even pointed out, right, they they make fun of them. Yep. And then at the end, when Wolf has them get into it, you go, oh, gotcha, gotcha. And then you start, and then you're driving home, and you're thinking, so really the end of the movie is when Bruce Willis drives away. And then you're just like, oh. I read that uh, interview with Quentin Tarantino that this movie for him is focused on the theme of salvation and redemption. And in the order that he put it in is the characters either getting close to or basically being offered up salvation and redemption and ending sort of with a redemption. I think this unconventional narrative structure is almost the reason this movie is what it is the reason it's so iconic i mean that alone is so interesting it blew people's minds blew our it blew all of our young minds yes uh i've heard that early on trying to get funding for the movie that it was almost detrimental that people were like this doesn't make any sense how do we how do we put this on screen and expect people to buy a ticket and enjoy this so uh, thank god that you know they found the funding that they did good transition jersey films anybody Danny DeVito, executive producer. I thought yeah. that was the most fascinating fact. I had yeah. no idea that he was involved with the film at all. He's actually been executive producer for a lot of films. And Danny DeVito, he gets out there. Hitman Jules Winfield and Vincent Vega arrive at an apartment to retrieve a briefcase for their boss, gangster Marcellus Wallace, from a business partner, Brett. After Vincent checks the contents of the briefcase, Jules shoots one of Brett's associates. He preaches a passage from the Bible, and he and Vincent kill Brett for trying to double-cross Marcellus. They take the briefcase to Marcellus and wait while he bribes boxer Butch Coolidge to take a dive in his upcoming match. The next day, Vincent purchases heroin from his drug dealer, Lance. He shoots up and drives to meet Marcellus's wife, Mia, having agreed to escort her while Marcellus is out of town. They eat at Jack Rabbit Slim's, a 1950s-themed restaurant, and participate in a twist contest, then return home. While Vincent is in the bathroom, Mia finds his heroin and snorts it, mistaking it for cocaine. She suffers an overdose. Vincent rushes her to Lance's house, where they revive her with an injection of adrenaline to her heart. Vincent drops Mia off at home, and the two agree never to tell Marcellus about the incident. The opening to Pulp Fiction, it's a hard cut, and we're already mid-dialogue, and that kind of catches you off guard, but it also kind of tells you what to expect. And here's where we meet uh, Pumpkin and Honey Bunny. And they are talking about how they don't want to rob liquor stores anymore. And then they get the bright idea to rob the diner. Uh, what do you guys think of this opening uh, vignette before the credits? Well, one of the best things about Quentin Tarantino movies, besides some of the action scenes, is the dialogue. And the fact that they just open up straight into a conversation, you're already getting what you're craving, which is that that script that, that Quentin Tarantino is so amazing at writing. 
certainly a bit jarring the conversation you're thrown into, uh, especially just openly talking about crime around. I mean, I I assume there's other people within earshot (laughs) that could hear them discussing all of their string of crimes they've committed. And they're certainly not being quiet about it. They're not hushed voices in the corner. They're, They're being very open with their intentions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Professor? I thought that the uh, dialogue was uh, really captivating because they're being so uh, casual about what it is that they're talking about. And then to uh, flip a switch and then they're into, you know, crazy psycho mode and into this robbery. Wow. Holy shit. That was, that was a jarring opening. Yeah. Her face, her face when she said very, Interesting. She yeah. almost looks like she's turning into, like she's transforming. Oh yeah, she definitely does transform into the psycho wielding the gun. Um, how many of us have ever gone to a diner and said, "Garcon, coffee"? Right. I mean, it's well, just something that you do. So after this, we meet Jules and Vincent. They're driving along down the road, and they're engaged in their small talk. And this small talk just seems so natural, and it's so memorable. Tarantino, he can write a fucking movie. You know what I mean? And he finds the right people to say the words that he's written. And how many of us haven't said Royale with cheese or any of that dialogue throughout our lives, right? I think my favorite bit is when they get there and they're opening the trunk and uh, Jules says we should have shotguns. And then Vincent does the math and he says, we should have shotguns. (laughs) That shot when you're in the trunk and the and the trunk opens and you see uh, Jules and Vincent uh, was very inspiring to me uh, because I actually used the same shot in the very first film I've ever made. It's a cool so, angle. Yeah. The other thing I think that's interesting about this dialogue that we get, we've all had these uh, go nowhere conversations about talking about just whatever, but in we, it, we turned it into a podcast, <laughs> but what we get in this conversation is that Vincent has been around the world and he has seen different things that are of a cultured society, right? He, he's talking about what other countries are like. He is not just some goon. Yeah. I think that kind of ties into his developing relationship with Mar- Marcellus as well, and maybe even Mia. And we, I'll get into that later, but it seems like they have intentions for Vince and his worldly point of view might be of value to them. They seem like they want to keep him around. Yeah, which is a great transition because one of the topics that Jules and Vincent are talking about is Mia Wallace. I love the bit when they're standing in the front of the door and he goes, why are you so interested in big man's wife anyway? And he goes, well, he asked me to take care of her. And Jules throws up the the gun. Take care of her? Oh, it's so funny. No, no, take her out. They're hitmen after all. Yeah, exactly. Commonly Exactly. But I do What do you think of their conversation about the foot massage? Oh, fucking A. So funny. Jules is telling Vincent a story about uh, Mia Wallace and one of Marcellus's henchmen. Tony Rakihara. Yeah, you'd know him. And he, the rumor is uh, that uh, Marcellus threw Tony Rakihara off a... Four-story balcony. For giving Mia a foot massage. And so they go into a debate. I mean, what really goes into a foot massage? And... I love how they end the debate, how Vincent wins that debate, yeah. which is, would you give a guy a foot massage? Fuck you. Jules gets pissed. He does. He does. He says he's pissed. Here's my question. And this has been rumored in Hollywood for a while. 
Does Quentin Tarantino have a foot fetish? Yes, 100% yes. he does. Because in every movie, he seems to have the women barefoot at some point. Uh, uh, there's multiple things in this movie. That- yeah, and they, they talk a lot about feet. So, yes, he has a foot fetish. And, you know, Quentin Tarantino not only has a style of writing and his dialogue, but the way he sees life through a camera is also very fascinating as well. I I really appreciate the way that Quentin Tarantino allows the camera to breathe. And uh, a great example of that is we have a tracking shot from Jules and Vincent from the car. Not we're not there yet because first we go up the elevator and then once we get out of the elevator, then we have the tracking shot of them going down, not two, but they do like three turns down th- three hallways. Right. But my point is it's a tracking shot. Yeah. Right. And it stops mm-hmm. on the door. And then uh, it's not quite time yet. So let's kick back. And instead of tracking with them, all he does is he just pans Pivots. to the right yeah. and he wa- and they walk down and they continue to have their conversation. Uh, but you can still hear him. You know what's going on, but he just allows that moment to breathe. And it's a foot massage conversation. Yes, we get a conclusion right? to the foot massage. Which is great. And I like... Happy af- ending. Yeah, and after uh, Vincent makes his point, Jules is very, you know... Measured. Yeah, and he you says... You have a point. Interesting point. Mm-hmm. And then he says, let's get back into character. And they walk uh, toward the camera, and then we pivot back to the front door, and now we're in the apartment. I like, no, that shot outside the door when they're just standing side by side. Yeah. Quote, unquote, getting into character. Yeah. And that's what he says about me Wallace. Yeah. And he says, why are you so interested in big man's mm-hmm. wife anyway? So yeah, yes, that's that yes, moment. Yes. Quentin Tarantino will do this throughout this film. And that's what I really appreciated about it. But yeah, I, I completely agree with his camera style and, and, and the prowessness, how he chooses to shoot his scenes because it is done so effectively. And he is very conscientious about how he's revealing his information to us, the audience. Absolutely. Throughout the entire film, I mean, he's very consistent. I I can't think of a single shot in this movie where you're not like almost tilting your head thinking, wow, I I feel like I'm being absorbed into this world he's showing us. Sure, sure, sure. Last thing I'll say about the outside and that shot leading us in, I feel like Quentin Tarantino is very good at putting us in a time and a place. And from if you're not paying attention to the background in the car when they're having their conversation about Amsterdam, it's very L.A. You can tell you're in L.A. when they get out. You can tell it's Southern California. This apartment building that they're going into, 1990s, late 1980s apartment building. Uh, Now we are in the apartment and Jules and Vincent are looking for the briefcase and they find the three guys that have it and so what'd you guys think of this this whole bit what you do remember your business associate don't you conversation yes that one oh so good i remember the first time seeing it i was having problems connecting up how brett fit into the picture and why brett had the briefcase but i guess he was a delivery guy he was supposed to deliver it to marcel never 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 gets explained never explained no yeah this this whole fucking bit jules walks in he just owns the fucking room and um so much of this movie, you know, I, I guess I could say that I, I took a lot of it because there have been countless times. You remember uh, when Jules asks him what he's eating? Mm-hmm. Big Kahuna burger, right? And then he says, "Cornerstone of any de- nutritious breakfast." And then uh, what's in this Sprite? Right. Good. Can I have a uh, taste of your, or can I have a drink of your tasty beverage to wash this down? And the look he's giving Brett as he's drinking all of it. You know how many times I've done that to my kids? I mean, countless. You know, there's so many things in this movie 
that I still do today. And that's the impact of Pulp Fiction. So at what point during Jules, uh, when he's his dialogue, would you have been pooping your pants? As uh, soon as he walked in the door. Oh yeah. As soon as I saw that Jerry curl. And then Brett feels like he has to explain. He fucked up. You can tell he made a mistake, whatever it was. And then Jules shoots the dude on the, the that couch. That was the point where I was like, okay, this is not going to end well for them. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? So good. Just the terror in Brett's face and his his physical acting as soon as he shoots him. I mean, it's it's loud, obviously. They're in a small apartment building, but he just violently starts shaking. Yeah, and then the whole what bit. I mean, you don't know whether Iconic. you're terrified or if you're supposed to be laughing because I remember fucking laughing. That might be one of my favorite lines in the movie. Does Marcellus Wallace look like a bitch? What? what? <laughs> then why'd you try to fuck him like one? I didn't. Yes, you did. Yes, yes you, you did. did, Brett. And Marcellus Wallace doesn't like to be fucked by anyone but Mrs. Wallace. And what is that an example of? Oh. <laughs> that is an example of our favorite word, foreshadowing. Your favorite word. So they find the briefcase, and let's just throw this out here now. What do you guys think's in the briefcase? There is, uh, according to the internet, there are four different things that could be in the briefcase. And those are all made up by people. I know. They absolutely, 100%, because Quentin Tarantino's already answered the question, but I'm going to throw these out there to see if you guys, in your head, could envision this in the briefcase. All right, let, wait, wait, let me see if I can guess. Uh, okay. okay uh, I know his soul is supposed to be soul one, of them. one of them. Of Marcel's soul. Right. Um, okay, what are the other three? The diamonds from Reservoir Dogs. Oh, I think I heard that one, actually. Yep. Yeah, but the, why would it be gold? But go on. Well, they just said, you know, they might, they're shiny or whatever. Uh, the third one is um, the gold Elvis suit from True Romance. And the fourth one? A orange light bulb. Which would you like to see in that briefcase? I thought our comic book guy would mention the theory about a comic book. Oh, I have not heard that one. I forget which comic book specifically, but there's some comic book nerds that say it's oh. like one of the rarest comic books, maybe like Superman first edition. Mm. Action comics, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You got, a, you got a prediction or thought of what you think, what you envision in that briefcase? Um, way back when uh, there was a movie poster of Pulp Fiction. It's a classic movie poster with Irma, Uma Thurman laying on the bed. And... Uh, supposedly there was a solid gold 45 sitting in front of her as opposed to the normal 45 and the regular poster. And I've always liked to think it was that. Professor, was there anything that you pictured in the briefcase? Not what I pictured, but what I have come to think based on tidbits of comments and things made over the years was that it is his soul. It is considered to be potentially removed from the back of his neck the back of his neck band-aid that is plainly shown to us the first time we see Marcellus. Somewhere, supposedly, the rumor is somewhere in the Bible, it states that if the soul could be removed, it would be removed from the back of the neck. Does anybody know why he is wearing the band-aid? They never said. I, I heard behind the scenes he cut himself shaving before he came to set. Yes, and, and Quentin loved, loved the look. It. He yep. Liked it. Yep. Yeah. 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 So, uh, Danny, do you have anything, any ideas what you think? I, I think if we're going to go with one, the soul theory seems the best to me. Uh, I never cared. And I feel weird because every time I tell people this is my favorite movie, they always want to ask, oh, what's in, what's in the briefcase? Well, then you just give them the right answer. It was I, the MacGuffin. It, it's a MacGuffin. Yes. Yeah. And I've always appreciated that. It doesn't matter what's in the case. Right. I love your idea of the gold gun in there. I've always kind of thought of it, especially when Vincent looks in and kind of gives that look. 
I always thought it was the Elvis gold suit. So uh, they get the briefcase, they shoot Brett, and they leave. Well, interesting thing. There's a couple different things with this, but did you notice during um, Jules' soliloquy uh, that he goes through the Bible verse and everything, he calls him Brad. Uh, I read that that Bible verse that he's quoting is not an actual quote from the Bible. Uh, It's actually closer to a quote from a Kung Fu movie uh, that Quentin Tarantino liked growing up. 1973, Sonny Chiba. I forget the name of the movie. Uh, The end, the ending part of the, the quote, uh, and I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance. That's that's the Ezekiel 25. Right. Yeah, when, when you read through it, it's like, hey, this is nothing like that. And it's it's just a really loose translation of it. Uh, so they leave, and then we get our first title card, which is Vincent Vega and Marcellus Wallace's wife. And uh, we fade in, and we're treated to a great Al Green song. And that's another thing, real quick, and we maybe touch on this later, whatever. Soundtrack, fucking oh, dynamite. Man. Absolutely one of the best soundtracks ever. Every song. Quentin Tarantino does a great job with his his music picks. Oh, absolutely. In all his movies. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's definitely a great needle dropper. Um, I think only Jackie Brown could be considered amongst the top. I mean, he nails it at every single, every scene, every song playing over what's happening on the screen. I mean, it, it almost lines up perfectly. It makes you feel like you're immersed. Further. I would definitely throw Kill Bill into that. Uh, arena oh, too true kill that's bill true. jackie brown and a fucking reservoir dogs oh you're right come on now we are introduced to marcellus wallace and he is talking to butch well we are introduced to butch we only hear marcellus's voice well, we're introduced to the back of his head yeah eventually we are shown the back of his head but he stays off camera for the majority of the conversation yeah i think we see enough of him to know that he's black bald and he does not look like a bitch so we, <laughs> we can at least derive that from the scene there you go there you go and he is giving uh butch instructions about uh the the dive he needs to take in the fight and just his whole the whole conversation you know it's just it just flows and it's fucking brilliant. He's trying to tell him this is this is a good deal. Take the dive, you can retire, everything will be fine and Butch agrees to it. That's the big thing here too is we don't know what would happen if Butch said no, but Butch agrees to this deal and then screws him over. Yeah, I know. So, I'm just saying that um it's not like Butch was forced into taking the agreement. Oh, no. No, I, I never thought he was. I thought he was planning it out from the start. Like he came into this agreement with the intention of ripping him off and mm-hmm. having whoever it was well, that, <laughs> later. Well, that's <laughs> certainly apparent with the conversation that he has with his bookie in, yes, in the phone booth. Exactly. Right. And in the meantime, Vincent and Jules show up in their alternate attire. And they are greeted by the jovial bartender. Did we get a name for the bartender? Paul. Paul. Because his name's Paul. And that shit's between y'all. <laughs> But Jules is not Pitt, and he ain't talking his way out of that shit. So that's I thought it was just a throwaway line. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. We'll call him Paul. So they are at the bar, and the whole uh, Mia bit comes back up. Paul, we'll just fucking call him Paul, says, I hear you're taking Mia out. And he says, uh, yeah, at per Marcellus's request. And he says, as he looks at Jules and goes, has he met her? And they it says no, no, and then they both start, start laughing. laughing. <laughs> 
Um, and then he feels the need to like explain, like he asked me to, like right. God, why'd you fucking ask me? That, and that's what he says. Yeah, that's exactly what he says. <laughs> so Butch and Marcellus are parting ways, and Butch makes his way to the bar to get some cigarettes, and he's standing there, and uh, John Travolta is just staring at him. And this is a great interaction between these two characters because you can tell that they both think they got the bigger dick and they neither of them are going to back down. But what I feel makes this scene so memorable for me is after Travolta giving Bruce Willis shit, then he and then Vincent's called over to uh, Marsalis. He walks by and the camera follows uh, Bruce Willis's head. And he turns around and he gives him a look like the fuck are you talking to right and it's such a classic bruce willis look that i just thought it was a fucking brilliant interaction between them the first thing i noticed about that shot when bruce willis comes up to the bar he's standing very close yeah to vincent almost they're almost touching and it's a big bar and i never understood if it was just a shot to a choice to get them in the shot so closely together uh, it's all framing. <laughs> it was framed. It was framed nicely. Yeah. I love the looks on their faces. You can really see their them like seething at each other. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, he orders uh, apple cigarettes. Red apple red, cigarettes. Red apple cigarettes, which is a staple throughout the Tarantino universe. So after this interaction, we are introduced to uh, Vincent's drug dealer, Lance. Uh, what would you guys think about this whole bit? Eric Stoltz? Yeah. I thought he did a good job. I thought he was great in the bathrobe and, you know. What did you think about how that scene started with the, uh, I don't know if it was his girlfriend or wife, talking about her piercings? Oh my so God, funny. So funny. So funny. Yeah. And it was funny that, you know, she names off all the piercings and she names off the piercing in her clit and then talks about the tongue and he's just fascinated with the tongue. Why the tongue? Helps with fellatio. The shot when they go into the bedroom together after he parts ways with the girls out front they go into the bedroom and he starts first shot is the the heroin three uh, bags of heroin on the bed right the shots of them of travolta and is it stoltz yeah it's another interesting angle you're like down in the corner looking up at them and for some reason it gives me a sinister feeling it feels off it feels crooked obviously it is they're, t- they're dealing out grams and grams of really strong heroin yeah. it's pretty dark um there's another thing you notice in the background if you see the little shelving there's three ornate high-heeled wedge shoes which i believe leads to our conclusion that tarantino has a strong foot fetish uh <laughs> oh, we talked about well i'll, I'll stop there because there's there's some racy dialogue as well from eric stoltz's character he drops some colorful language Tarantino has always been accused of using the N-word freely. One of the things that turns me off to the film now uh, is when Eric Stoltz uses it and when Quentin Tarantino himself uses it. We get racist language, and we also see a a pretty good deal of sexism in this scene as well when he calls his wife and says, hey, will you bring me the baggies and the ties? And it definitely clues you into the fact that he doesn't really, I don't know if he loves his wife. <laughs> he certainly <laughs> doesn't you, treat her like it. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, also with the dialogue, when he asks him if you want to stay and get high. Right. Uh, Trudy doesn't have a boyfriend. Trudy doesn't have a boyfriend. Yeah. Which, Which one's, one's Trudy? Trudy? She's the one with all the shit in her face. That's Jody. That's my wife. And then they laugh. Yeah. Sexism. Yeah. 
Good stuff. Very fun. (laughs) Did you know that when Tarantino was talking about putting himself in this movie, he was either going to play Lance or he was going to play the character that he played? I think he picked right. I think he picked, he did better at that other role. I'm just going to throw this out here right now. Quentin Tarantino is a horrible actor. Mm -hmm. Yes. He's a great director. He's almost maybe even a better writer, but he cannot act to save his life. No. I would, if I had to pick one Tarantino film that he acted in that I thought, oh, okay, whatever, it's from Dust Till Dawn. But that's a whole other podcast for a whole other time. Well, the whole reason he said that he took the role that he took, because originally he did want to do Lance, but he chose not to because he wanted to be behind the camera for the OD scene. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's why he took it, huh? Yeah. Um, speaking of the OD scene... Uh, Vincent gets his drugs. He's driving to Mia's. We get this montage of him shooting up and then him driving and uh, it's rear projection in the back and it's blurry and out of focus. Totally meant to be because he's on the heroin and he gets uh, to Mia's house and there's a note on the door. And this is where we are first introduced to Mia Wallace ish. Uh, She leaves a note. He comes on in and then we see, her feet weird and then we see that she is watching vincent through uh monitors and talking to him over the intercom what do you guys think of this bit danny you said it earlier that mia is a fascinating character that it's hard to kind of figure her out you know she talks about that she's upstairs doing these things but really she's just sitting at you know those video monitors almost like you know because that's almost like a god position watching over your subjects and it's like she's having that power over him at that moment yeah um going back to the heroin injection the whole they they literally show you step by step hey this is how you do heroin and i don't know i i mean other than maybe train spotting i don't know if i've ever seen such gratuitous drug use in your face in a film and i mean tarantino is showing you He's unzipping his little bag. He's cooking the heroin on an old spoon. You see him puncture his arm and sh- the blood shoot the blood into, shooting up. Yeah, into me. the syringe. Uh, it's extremely disturbing, and it makes me sick to my stomach every single time I see it. It's unsettling. It's scary. It's gross. And frankly, I'm always like... I mean, it is a Tarantino movie, so he does take little liberties with reality, but... and. Granted, Vince did just get back from Amsterdam. He must have a pretty high tolerance for heroin, but the fact that he just shot up and is now functionally driving to his boss's house is is amazing. Did you hear how he prepared for this scene? No. How? Basically, he uh, Quentin Tarantino told him to go talk to some heroin users. So he went, I believe, to a rehab and spoke with them, and one of them told him, without doing heroin, if you want to know what it feels like, drink a bottle of tequila and sit in a hot tub. So he went home and told his wife, this is my assignment. I got to drink a bunch of tequila and go sit in our hot tub. And she said, okay, I'll join you. So they lined up shots of tequila all around the hot tub and sat there and drank. Yeah. I guess he found someone really special. Yeah. I guess the feeling was supposed to represent, you know, that drunk feeling while being surrounded by warmth. And he said the the heroin addict told him, now multiply that by 100, and that's what you got as heroin. Yeah. I did a Crazy. little research on what it feels like to be on heroin as well. I obviously have never done that. but uh, Why is it obvious? Well, I mean, he's I guess still, it's not. I he's still here. Not. Maybe I should rephrase. <laughs> yeah, I'm still here. Uh, I, I was just shocked by the fact that 
Tarantino could get away with showing you step by step how to do how to shoot up heroin in a film that's released nationwide. He 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 did, and uh, a lot of uh, the criticism that came before he got the rating was they didn't want him to glamorize heroin use. And I think yes, you have this bit, and it's a montage, and you got the song going on, and it might look. Uh, glamorous or it might look cool maybe but the flip side of that coin happens 10 minutes later when you know mia overdoses that's the reality of it and i think that's the scariest part of it did so did seeing him shoot up and get in the car and everything did that change the way you felt about vincent or did it more make sense of how it why his character is that way no it didn't um no he's a fucking him man it didn't change anything I heard John Travolta phrase his understanding of his character that he thinks us as the viewers would view his character, Vincent, as an underdog and that we'd be rooting for him. And I was really surprised that he would phrase Vincent or really portray him in that light or think that we would be rooting for him really at all. I, I don't I never felt like I was on Vincent's side during a certain, certainly not during this piece of the film. Well, he is a Scientologist, so he's probably a little loony. Shh. They're listening. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> so I was uh, struck when he was paying for his heroin, that fat fucking wad of cash that he pulled out of his pocket. How was that wad of cash even in a pocket? That was a ridiculous amount. And then, yeah, to watch him shoot up, I have to say it was extremely jarring and disturbing when I was watching it the first time. I remember thinking, holy shit, man, what are we doing here? This is crazy watching this. And then we see Mia doing the lines of coke after that. It's just like, holy moly, this is just like turning into one big drug trip. I remembered thinking specifically, like, I don't know if this is my movie. At least the music's good. Yeah, you got the music going. And yeah, these are not good people. This is definitely a crime story for sure. So Vince picks up Mia and they go to Jackrabbit Slim's. And this is a 1950s theme restaurant. What did you guys think of the whole bit of the the conversation dialogue and then the dancing bit? I thought the, the dialogue was great. Danny quoted that for the beginning of our show about the awkward silence and all that. And it, it did kind of feel like a first date, but like maybe a, you know, obviously Vincent didn't want to be there. He was hired to be there basically or told he had to be there. And it was awkward. It was awkward for both of them, but they did have to, you know, they started to build that sort of chemistry between them. Tarantino talks about how uh, throughout this movie, he's recycling old tropes and the one trope that he mentioned specific to Mia and Vincent is the old shtick about the muscle has to take the boss's wife out and he can't touch her, but he has to be nice to her and show her a good time. And you definitely feel that. I feel like he, <laughs> if that's an example of a trope, I'd say it plays out perfectly in front of us throughout this whole scene. Uh, Vincent is obviously, you can tell like there's a couple missteps he has, like he's still a little high on the heroin. Uh, he's he's absorbing this space as we are. I mean, the set is incredible. This is one of my favorite scenes in the movie, not just because of the, maybe one of my favorite pieces of dialogue in any film, but this massive set they constructed for Jack Rabbit Slims is, is phenomenal. It's eye candy. There's references throughout, too many to even mention here. Yeah. And we get Steve Buscemi. Yeah. I don't think Buddy Holly is much of a waiter. Um, Did you catch the reference to another Tarantino movie in their dialogue. Well, yeah. it comes about later on. I which, mean, which one are you thinking? Kill Bill. 
But yeah, it's where it's uh, Fox Force Five. Yeah, Fox Force Five. He describes basically the uh, Kill Bill cast. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean the five deadly assassins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely where it came from. The exchange between them when she starts to tell him about the Fox Force Five and the fact that her character, uh, she was going to tell a joke in each episode. I love that she doesn't tell him the joke then. And obviously it comes back around later, but she says herself, it's been hyped up too much. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so uh, they have that uncomfortable silence moment. And then she goes to the bathroom and tells him come up and or think of something to say. And when she comes back from doing the Coke, he brings up, you know, what happened between Antoine, Tony Rocky horror and Marcellus. And so Vincent does ask, uh, Mia, if he if she knows what happens, and she says, uh, the truth is only Tony and Marcellus know, and the only thing that Tony ever shook was her hand. I like Vincent's delivery of that line where he's saying sequentially, like, well, one way to say it is Marcellus or <laughs> Tony fell out of a window. Another way to say it is Marcellus threw him out the window. And yet even another way to say it is <laughs> he threw Tony out a window because of you. Then we get to the dance sequence. I thought this dance sequence was fun. And, you know, it's John Travolta dancing. I mean, that's always a plus. Um, however, for me, it, it went on just a bit too long. And did it also feel like they started out doing the twist, but then left the twist and then came back to it? I heard a little behind the scenes that that was really all Quentin Tarantino knew was the twist. Yeah. So they came into the scene and he said, you guys are going to do the twist. And they started filming and Travolta said, well, you know, there's, there's other dances and he, and Quentin's just like, well, what are they? And so he starts running down the Batman, the surfer, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and thank God that Travolta is the incredible dancer that he is, because I think that helped make that scene so yeah. iconic. Yeah. And he taught Uma Thurman how to do it. And yeah, I heard that she was, she was actually scared to dance with him. And he just looked at her and said, just fucking dance. When Quentin got the, the lock of Travolta for the cast. He's like, well, now I got to put a dance scene in there. If I got Travolta in my movie, I'm going to make him dance. So they enter the dance contest and they win. And I like the line where she says, uh, she volunteers right away. And he's like, no, 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 no. And she goes, I do believe my husband, your boss told you to take me out and do whatever I want. I want to dance. I want that trophy. So dance good. I love the power dynamic, the power play throughout their entire time on screen together is so interesting. I mean, from the moment Vincent walks in the door and like you said, she's almost in this godlike position looking down on him from the, uh, from the camera room. And Vincent is clearly unsettled about this whole situation. I mean, we see it from the very beginning. They've yeah. been talking about it yeah. <laughs> up until this point. So he's clearly nervous. He's trying to play it cool. And she takes advantage of the situation when she sees that he's, uneasy about it yeah yeah one little touch that i love in this movie and it made me want to own a zippo lighter was the cool way that he lit her cigarette mm-hmm. well they do smoke a lot of cigarettes in this film yeah they do so they win the dance contest and they end up back at uh mia's house and they're gonna have some drinks and some music well there's a little bit of chemistry that shows when the two of them are dancing together just inside the house yeah and then they and he says is that what an uncomfortable silence feels like and she says i don't know what that was you know um then she diffuses it she says drink music and she goes and he obviously feels comfortable enough because he says i'm gonna go take a piss uh, and then this is where we get that great uh, John Travolta bit where he's talking to himself. 
You know, he's rationalizing and trying to say... Just one drink, just one drink. What the fuck are you doing, right? And in the meantime, Uma Thurman uh, turns on some music on the reel-to-reel, and she starts dancing around. And then we cut back and forth between Travolta having an inner crisis and um, Mia dancing around. She lights a cigarette. She uh, is playing with the Zippo lighter. And then she reaches into Travolta's pocket and finds heroin. However, she doesn't think it's heroin, so she lines it up, and she snorts it. I guess uh, Eric Stoltz's character Lance had said earlier, I don't have any bags, I have a balloon, can I put it in a balloon? Other that, way, other way, way around. around. Or is that, the, it's, I'm sorry, the other way around. Uh, and I guess that's the way that cocaine is usually presented, so that's why she assumed it was cocaine. Have you ever had someone present some cocaine? <laughs> well, that, that's for another show. <laughs> Present it to me. <laughs> Present so, them. The way that he sold it, kind of like was he was presenting them. This the is Choco. He's a fucking madman. There's so many missteps in this scene that, uh, honestly, I blame it all on Vincent due to his in- his insecure feelings. He is second-guessing himself. He his, He's got to give himself a repeated pep talk telling himself exactly what he's going to do. He's not going to fuck his boss's wife. Right, right, right. You're going to go home. You're going to jerk off, and that's all you're going to do. do. <laughs> if he had just been more comfortable in his skin, I mean, it's, it must be hard for a heroin addict to be comfortable in their skin, but if he had come back one second earlier, a minute earlier. If he comes back one second earlier, we don't get one of the most intense scenes in cinematic history. Amen. This fucking adrenaline scene. Okay, let's just jump to it. She mistakenly takes it, thinking it was coke, it's heroin, she's ODing. So what does he do? He's going to Lance's. And the whole dialogue between Lance and uh, Vince from the cell phone to the house, fucking classic. Prank call, prank call, prank call. Fuck you, Lance, answer! As soon as they get Mia in the house, you have this one tracking shot, and it lasts about a minute 20 when they... They get her in the front door, and the camera backs up, and then he wants his, his black medical book, and then he goes looking for his medical book himself. Great, great, great camera work here. I loved how it, it showed the chaos of the moment. First time I saw this scene, and they have the needle out, and you have to stab her in the chest, which I think is a great line of, he kind of makes the jabbing things like, I got to stab her three times, but uh, I've always thought every time I see that scene, could I do that? Could I jab someone in the heart with an ins- you know, with a uh, adrenaline needle? Would you be able to do that? No, because I don't go around with bubble gummers. My friends can handle their dope. You? Oh, I don't know. I never really thought about it before. But I will say that when I saw it for the first time in the theater and I'm watching this and my eyes haven't blinked at all and I'm just staring slack-jawed at the screen as they're arguing over Mia's body, this is so not my life. Oh, I know. And I love the, you give her the shot. No, you give her the shot. The day I bring an ODing bitch to your house is the day I give her the shot. And he goes, fine, fine, gets the black magic marker. And then uh, he's explaining how to get it through her breastplate and what to do. And my, my favorite bit in this whole thing is he goes, well, what happens after that? Well, I don't know. I'm pretty curious about that myself (laughs) i love them describing how they film this in this house uh it sounded like they were in there for hours just and tarantino just said fight just go just argue with each other 
And you can tell, like, through some of these shots that they're sweating. They're yeah. red. They've been working at this for a while. Yeah. I, I just like the scene of when she does wake up and she screams and jumps back. You can still see that needle sticking out of her chest. Mm. If you're okay, say something. Something. I loved the camera work that we get on this because as this moment is there and the marker has been made, uh, the mark has been made on her chest plate. And then as the moment comes with the, you know, one, two, three, you have these slow pull in shots of each one of our characters. And, and as each one of these slow pull in shots are happening, we have this incredible tension. Like you were speaking about having this, moment i cannot think of a more intense feeling i've had in a movie in anything else that i ever saw the first time through it was just incredible having that one two three the moment that the uh the needle is stabbed into her quentin actually had it filmed backwards so the uh shot is actually starting at her chest plate and then it's travolta it's vincent lifting up and out so that way you could get that violent force he filmed it and then he and then he replays it backwards and then right after she pops up and everybody jumps back all four of our characters they they go to separate corners of the screen and then after she settles down then all four of them come back into the center of they move towards the middle of the frame together just such beautiful camera work for this and good on Trudy for not spilling the bong. That was a jarring situation. Uh, and, and I love Jody's. Uh, I love her expressions as they're doing the countdown. She's got that smile. She's stoked. She's, she's, she's fucking excited. Giddy. She's really wants to see what's going to happen, right? And then uh, at the when Mia's okay, whatever, she's all that was fucking trippy. Yeah, <laughs> that was so good. <laughs> and then how 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 different. Mia looks, she is so transformed into this goth death figure in the passenger seat and in the passenger seat as they're driving home. She looks a world different than what we had earlier in the evening. She almost fucking died. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so he takes her home and he says, how do you want to handle this? And she says, well, if Marcellus knew about this, I would be in just as just much trouble as you. Mm -hmm. And he's all, I really doubt that. <laughs> you know and then so they agree and i love the fact that after he says uh she says i can keep a secret if you can he just to be extra sure he says shake, shake on, on it. it yeah it's such a good moment and i think it's at that moment that she says hey do you still want to hear that joke you know and then we get the, the tomato ketchup joke and he chuckles which is nice and then she walks away and then he blows her a kiss you know which i, I thought was sweet so I, I felt like that the reason why the joke, this is just my feeling that the reason why she tells the joke is I think it's her only way that she is able to say thank you because she doesn't say thank you to anybody for saving her life. And it's maybe her way to atone for her behavior and what she has put everybody through that this is the only thing that she has to give that is going to say, you know, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Butch bets the bribe money on himself and double crosses his Marcellus, winning the bout but accidentally killing his opponent as well. Knowing that Marcellus will send the hitman after him, he prepares to flee with his girlfriend. 
but discovers she has forgotten to pack a gold watch passed down to him through his family. Returning to his apartment to retrieve it, he notices a submachine gun on the kitchen counter and hears the toilet flush. When Vincent exits the bathroom, Butch shoots him dead and departs. When Marcellus spots Butch stopped at a traffic light, Butch rams his car into him, leaving both of them injured and dazed. Once Marcellus regains consciousness, he draws a gun and starts to shoot at Butch, chasing him into a pawn shop. As Butch gains the upper hand and is about to shoot Marcellus, Maynard, the shop owner, catches them at gunpoint and binds and gags them in the basement. Maynard and his accomplice Zed take Marcellus into another room and begin to rape him, leaving the gimp, a silent figure in a bondage suit, to watch over Butch. Butch breaks loose and knocks the gimp unconscious. Instead of fleeing, he decides to save Marcellus and arms himself with a katana from the pawn shop. He kills Maynard and frees Marcellus, who shoots Zed in the crotch with Maynard's shotgun. Marcellus forms Butch they are even, and to tell no one about the rape and to depart Los Angeles forever. Butch picks up his girlfriend on Zed's chopper, and they ride away. Roll credits. <laughs> so uh, we are now going on to our second story we meet a young butch uh watching cartoons and he gets visited by captain coons played by christopher walken uh what'd you guys think of this whole bit with christopher walken and the kid well first of all i thought that when she said remember when i told you your dad died i thought she was going to say this is your dad that he's just been freed from a pow camp but turns out he's just a guy who knew the father and was returning the watch yeah yeah uh this whole story uh he christopher walken uh shows butch this gold watch and he tells him the uh, history of the gold watch uh back from his great grandfather to his grandfather um to his father and then uh his father was taken as a pow and you know he could only hide the watch in one place and that was his ass <laughs> prison purse and but then he dies of dysentery he dies of dysentery and then uh was it captain coons yeah he then hides the watch up his butt until he's finally released so he can return the watch to the person so yeah this watch is hugely important to butch so yeah that is our introduction to the next story which is titled the gold watch and I love this bit because he doesn't say anything. He's getting ready for the fight and he rushes out. The um, screen goes black, says the gold watch. And then when we come out of it, he's making his escape. And we only know what has happened because of what is on the radio in the cab, which is waiting for Butch. He jumps out the window, jumps in the cab. What do you guys think of this cab scene? Fucking loved it. I love this this whole little dialogue that the gal keeps asking him. You know, what does it feel like? What does it feel like to kill a man? Yeah. I loved her. She was delightful because, you know, she is, I, I don't know why, but I, I, I just dug the, the intensity of the scene. The background of the city was this clearly animated black and white that, um, is clearly artificial and so it's telling us the audience that everything that we're paying attention to is what is happening right now in this back and forth between butch and the cab driver the scene where they talk about what does it feel like to kill someone was this just an establishing to basically say that butch doesn't care about whether or not someone lives or dies he has no preference and then that's why later on when he makes that choice to save wallace uh 
it's like trying to see a change in him that life now has become important. No, I think that um, the fact that he doesn't even know that Floyd's dead until she tells, she tells him. um, And then after she does, after he does know, he doesn't feel bad about it. He doesn't feel bad about it because they both knew the risks. They both knew that being a boxer, you know, come, I mean, it could be very dangerous, obviously. And I mean, he even says it to his buddy on the phone too. If he was even, if he was a, better fighter he'd still be alive or. Mm-hmm. but you think the average person would still feel something i look at that scene in comparison to what we were just shown with butch and his forefathers every single one of them was a soldier and i feel like it's safe to assume that his father his grandfather's great grandfather all killed people yeah so i have to assume that that's kind of going through butch's mind as well in that moment the last thing I'll say about Butch's mindset is when he is on the phone with his bookie and he is very flippant about the fact that he died. My take every time when I hear Willis delivering that line is he is contemplating something internally, but he's not going to share that to anybody outside. Maybe he would open up to his woman at some point down the line, but he seems to be shoving that down. Say, and like you said, he knew the risk. He, if he was a better fighter, he shouldn't have fucking gotten the ring in the first place. So whether or not he's projecting or not is obviously up to our imagination, but I think Butch is kind of chewing on that a little bit. And so the Esmeralda Villalobos brings him to uh, the hotel or motel that they're staying at, and this is where we meet Fabian, uh, Bruce Willis's girlfriend. And I got to say, this bit of the movie drug a little bit for me, and it slows us down, and it I don't want to say it kills the vibe, but it for me, it, it definitely slowed us down, and if... If I could pick any scenes out of this film that I would take out, it would probably be the scenes with Fabian, really. Uh, any thoughts on their dynamic as a couple? I I liked them together. I thought that, that they were very sweet together. I thought it was a little gross. I always thought Fabian was seemed quite a bit younger than Butch and certainly more naive or at least oblivious to all these horrible things going on around her. She seems very unaware of what Butch is involved in. She knows that they're doing something bad and they need to run away, but she almost doesn't want to know what the reason is, is behind that. Yeah. Well, for sure. Okay. But previously he's just a boxer to, to her. He's just a boxer. That's how I took it. But Marcellus also said that he was, you know, older than most boxers. You know, he was at the end of his career. So he, He's up there in age. For me, I mean, maybe it's the actress. Uh, I I didn't buy that they had chemistry, and she comes across more annoying than anything. And maybe she's designed to, maybe she's written to. Um, but yeah, I I just didn't like the character. My, my problem with their chemistry was first of all the way that you know he talks to her is kind of talking down to her. He says a lot of negative things that really upset her. And then when he finds about the watch and explodes in kind of this almost, you think, is he going to hit her? Is he going to hurt her? And then he kind of backs off a little bit. But that explosive, you know, relationship tells me that I don't know if this is going to work out for the two of them. I keep thinking about that too throughout the scene. As we, as we learn that they're planning to run away together, I think this is a view of, what their relationship is going to look like where Butch flies off the handle. He breaks stuff. She cowers in the corner and thankfully he doesn't hit her in this instance, but I think it doesn't leave much up to the imagination that he's not far off from, from doing that if he thinks she really fucked up. Well, you have to also uh, think about what she forgot to do. True. 
there was nothing more important to him than that watch. So because that was the most extreme, obviously we got the extreme reaction, which is him throwing the TV. But he immediately brings it in. He, I never once thought he was going to hit her. He got really super pissed, and then he, you know, he brought it back down, and he said, "You know what? Uh, I should have told you how important it was to me. You know, this isn't your fault. It's mine. I should have been more clear than." how clear I already was. Right. And then, I mean, obviously when he decides to go back and get the watch, he's in the car, you know, venting about it. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know. Would you have gone back for the watch in same circumstances? Even saying you pretty much have gotten away. No, 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 no. um, I'm sorry. Say, did I receive the watch in the same circumstance? Yes. Yes. Fuck. Yes. I would. You would do it. Yes. Professor, would you go back for the watch? I don't know. I mean, this is basically, you know, you could be basically signing, making it easy for them to catch you and kill you by if, going back. For but it. if this was the only thing that I had from my father, who am I didn't know, and my whole life um, being, you know, knowing what he went through to get me this watch, yes, I would fucking go get it in a heartbeat. You, Danny? I don't want a stinky ass watch. So he has to go back and get the watch. So he goes to his apartment. Um, I dug the tracking shot. It lasts just about a minute. Absolutely. When he pulls up, looks around, gets out, and then, you and know. Then we follow. Because he, he didn't obviously park in front of his apartment complex, which was great. So he has to walk through a vacant lot. And we track with him the entire way until he gets to the fence. And then we get to the courtyard. And then he goes in. And I love, he, he puts the key in. And we get a close-up on his face. And he exhales and opens up and walks in. How does Vincent not hear him walking around? Yeah, he's taking a shit. I guess. I meant to bring that up in the apartment building when they were killing Brett and his associates. How? Uh, I mean, they do say we'll get we'll get to that. We circle back to that. But I mean, no one's no one's gonna hear that. A, a loud door open. He slams the door. He's walking around. Vincent's. It must be a powerful shit. Something that bothers me about this scene is you know people are looking for you. You know they're going to kill you pretty much on site or take you back to Wallace who will torture you and kill you. He comes in, he gets to watch, and then he decides to make himself some of those... Uh, Pop-tarts. Pop-tarts. I'm thinking, what the hell? He's to get the hell out of there. Yeah, well, he, he was feeling pretty confident at the moment. and at that moment. Yeah. And, and then his eyes lock on something, and I think that is delightful how... We have that. What is he looking at? Yeah. That just stops him in his tracks. And we find it's a Mac 10 machine gun with a silencer. And as soon as he picks it up, the toilet flushes and then the door opens and it's fucking Vincent Vega. And there they are face to face again. But this time, but this time, Brucey's got a fucking machine gun. I was half expecting to say yippee ki <laughs> A little bit too much on the nose there, but um he kills vincent so he walks out gets in his car thinks he's getting away um they underestimated you that's right and he comes to a stoplight and coming walking across the street is marsalis wallace he stops and he turns and he faces and he can't believe who's in the car motherfucker So what does Butch do? He fucking naturally hits Marcellus with the car. Uh, We fade to black. And when we come back, uh, Marcellus is uh, regaining consciousness around a group of people. And Butch broke his nose. Once uh, Marcellus gets up, regains his footing, he just starts shooting. 
So we've had an accident, and now we have an active shooter, and yet there's no police, no ambulance, no nothing. Fucking L.A. Well, I, I thought tell the you. same thing when Butch is leaving the pawn shop later. There would have been an investigation for at least that, that woman that got shot, the bystander. You would have thought, because the pawn shop's right there. Yeah, right? they just ran around the corner. Right. So uh, Butch runs into a pawn shop, waits for Marcellus to come in. He ran into the wrong pawn shop. Oh, fuck. Uh, yeah. So Marcellus walks in. Uh, Butch starts beating on him. Just before Butch is going to shoot Marcellus, Maynard stops him, knocks him out, and then gets on the phone with Zed. And what does he say? Spider just caught a couple of flies. Oh, and from that moment, you were just thinking, oh, shit. Right? Cut to Butch and Marcellus taped to chairs with ball gags. And at this point, you're really going, oh, shit. So Maynard tells him, you know, no one kills anybody in my place of business except me or Zed. That's Zed. And he comes down. And these two... Uh, hillbilly boy rapists fucking definition of creepy this is the scene that actually turned off a lot of people to this movie and i understand why and i get it but what did you guys think of this whole scene the way that it opened up with uh the two of them uh sitting there uh, the gimp sleeping well i guess you're just gonna have to go wake them up now won't you and then getting the gimp out right so we sit there looking at their faces and in the background, out of focus, we hear all of that work to get the box open. And eventually, a cage needs to be lifted out. And motherfuck, there's somebody inside there? Holy shit. Crazy, crazy, crazy. And he's all bondaged up. Oh, my God. He's the ultimate sub. Just the sound when he comes and he crouches down next to Zed and Zed's ringing his fingers on the top of his head. Yeah, yeah, just intense. It's like, what the fuck? Are, what rabbit hole did I go down into? And and then you get the expressions from Marcellus and Butch. They can't believe what the fuck is going on, too. And you're right with that ringing when he's petting his head. Fucking creepy. I just kept thinking, what tangent have we gone on? Where is this going to go? It didn't make any sense. Like, why Why would Tarantino put this kind of, you know, diversion in the movie? Uh, shock value. So they pick Marcellus. They take him into the... Uh, take him into the fun room. The door slams, and then immediately the sounds begin. Right, and we get that, uh, that tune. I think it's called Comanche. And um, it just keeps going, and again, you hear the grunting, and and you know Tarantino is you know taking a page right out of Spielberg's book. Less is more, right? Absolutely, you're only hearing what's going on, which I think makes it even worse. And while it's Absolutely. all going on, and there's grunting, you know what's happening. Butch manages to free himself from the chair. I love the gimp's reaction when he does. He's trying to scream, but he's got the but he's know, got yeah he's zippered up and he can't do it. And, and he's one all, punch, <laughs> and yeah, one punch knocked out. Well, he's a fucking boxer. He's a fucking boxer, mm -hmm. right? So he walks up and he's gonna leave. He he's on his way to freedom, but he I I think he knows that if he saves Marcellus, there's a good chance that he'll be able to walk away from this. So I I like the bit where he opens the door. Pulls out a hammer. Well, no, he, he's going to leave. Yeah. Contemplates. And, he contemplates, right? And then he's like, fuck. He can, right, and then he, he goes Because he can hear them downstairs. Right. And again, the, the moans are just, or the grunts are getting louder and just more and more and more. And it was at this point where 
I kind of thought, isn't Butch taking his sweet time picking out which weapon he wants? It's pretty slow burn. I do love that, though, as he the keeps... The progression. The progression of the bigger to bigger to bigger to going to the chainsaw. And I thought, oh, he's going to go chainsaw on all of them. Oh, my God. So funny. And then he picks another toy, and the camera smartly is does up. not show us. We no. see Bruce Willis's we see look. reaction. And then and we we're see, looking down. Yeah. We are looking down at at Butch, and Butch is looking up, and he has stopped just like he did with the machine gun on the counter. And we find out it's a katana. I think he picked the best one. So he picks the katana. He goes downstairs, uh, and I think this is probably you thought the uh, <laughs> you thought the heroin scene, the shooting up scene, was disturbing. I don't think there's anything more disturbing than watching Maynard's face watching Zed and Marcellus and just that look and that just fucking gross, right? The I mean, me next look. Yeah, I mean, he these two are very much rapists, right? And there's no sugarcoating that. These two fucks um, are scum of the earth. But you can see Maynard is getting off on this, and that's that's just wrong. You know what I mean? And uh, you notice as it's going on and on and on, Bruce Willis walks in and Marcellus notices him. Oh, I, I love it when he, when Butch is slowly walking down the stairs. His face is completely bloodied. The front of his white shirt is completely bloodied. And he is slowly, deliberately walking down those stairs with that sword out front. Frightening, frightening watching him come down the stairs. Yeah. And then he goes to work. He takes care of Maynard. Catches Zed off guard, and then, you know, he's toying with Zed a little bit, going, go for the gun, I dare you, I dare you. And then you hear the shotgun cock, and it's fucking Marcellus, and I love that line. Step aside, butch. Uh, Marcellus shoots Zed in the balls, and just that whole, this dialogue between Marcellus and Butch is so good. And I, I, I love how when Butch says, are you okay? No, man. I'm pretty fucking far from being okay. That's such a great delivery. And then Marcellus goes on his little tangent. I'm going to call up some brothers. We're going to go to work on the homes here. I'm going to get medieval on your ass, right? Hard piping. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, hard pipe hitting. And then Butch was like, no, man. I mean, are, are, what about us? Because <laughs> he, he's, more, he's more concerned about that. And then I don't know if you noticed this. Uh, but it, it's very prominent to me. He says, oh, that, now what? And Marcellus drops his arm with the gun, and then Bruce Willis does the same thing mm -hmm. as like they're getting yep. ready to defend each other, defend themselves just in case something pops off. But Marcellus says, you know what? There is no you and me. I appreciate that uh, Marcellus never looks at him. He basically, yeah. it almost felt like what we, you know, in Goodfellas, that I have to turn my back now, basically saying, you don't exist anymore. If you leave, never come back to L.A., I won't come looking for you. Yeah, I mean, he, he's basically saying, you, you saved me. I mean, I guess. And you won't talk about what happened. Right, and he goes, uh, there is no you and me. Two, uh, two conditions. You leave L.A. tonight. You, you be gone, you stay gone. And then, you, you lost know, your L.A. privileges. Yeah, I, I love that line. Uh, and then, he's, obviously, don't mention shit. And then... Uh, I like the little wave as as Butch goes to leave. He looks back and Marcellus doesn't say a word. He, he just, just holds his hand up. Yep. And Butch is gone and he takes the bike. Grace. Chopper. It's a <laughs> chopper, baby. 
<laughs> so yeah, uh, Butch saves the day and he gets to leave and then he goes to pick up Fabian. Um, Whose motorcycle is this? It's a chopper, baby. Whose chopper is this? Zed's, baby. Who's Zed? Zed's dead, baby. Zed's dead. Earlier, after Vincent and Jules have killed Brett in his apartment, another man bursts out of the bathroom and fires at them, but every shot misses. After briefly checking themselves for wounds, Jules and Vincent shoot him dead. While driving away with Brett's associate Marvin, Jules professes that their survival was a miracle, which Vincent disputes. Vincent accidentally shoots Marvin in the face, killing him and covering Vincent, Jules, and the car's interior in blood in broad daylight. They hide the car at the home of Jules' friend Jimmy, who demands they deal with the problem before his wife Bonnie comes home. Marcellus sends a cleaner, Winston Wolf, who directs Jules and Vincent to clean the car, hide the body in the trunk, dispose of their bloody clothes, and take the car to a junkyard. At a diner, Jules tells Vincent that he plans to retire from his life of crime, convinced that their miraculous survival at the apartment was a sign of divine intervention. While Vincent is in the bathroom, a couple, Pumpkin and Honey Bunny, hold up the restaurant and demand Marcellus's briefcase. Distracting him with its contents, Jules overpowers Pumpkin and holds him at gunpoint. Honey Bunny becomes hysterical and points her gun at him. Vincent returns with his gun aimed at her, but Jules diffuses the situation. He recites the biblical passage expressing ambivalence about his life of crime and allows the robbers to take his cash and leave. Jules and Vincent leave the diner with the briefcase in hand. Roll credits. So after the gold watch, we get the Bonnie situation and we pick up back in the apartment where we started the movie. So I'm sure this at this point, people in the theater are going, what the fuck is going on now? Right. But this time, instead of uh, us being out with Brett and the Hitman, there's a guy who looked really like Jerry Seinfeld in the bathroom with a hand cannon. And after they shoot, after Jules and Vincent shoot Brett, he comes out, shoots at them, and he misses. What did you guys think of this whole bit with uh, the divine intervention? I really enjoyed the scene because it. this is where the whiplash happens. Okay, wait a minute. We're going back into the early part of the movie. Vincent's still with us. Okay, and okay. And so watching it play out now, there's a whole other part to this apartment scene. Holy shit. Why do we... Okay. Now I get it. And so I just love the twist that it gives us in the story that it's not being told in a linear fashion now. And I thought that it was uh, really, really exciting having this happen this late into the movie because I am just bowled over yet again by another fantastic situation that this movie is giving me. I am just so flabbergasted that we have yet something new unfolding before us that the story isn't being told linearly it's very exciting i was excited when it's not the end of the film and we do flashback i i was one of those people that are caught off guard i think it's funny when people say they're they're confused by that or they don't like that choice but i mean it's unconventional is the right word for it but i don't recall any other movie myself that employs it in such a good way for me i thought this was kind of like the dream sequence that this was going to turn out to just be a flashback of something that happened, you know, someone later is just having a flashback to what, you know, what happened in this thing. I didn't realize that we were taking it all out of order. I do want to say the first time I saw this movie or saw this scene, it was actually very confusing to me because I actually caught that right before 
the guy comes out of the bathroom, there was already bullet holes in the wall. And when he comes out and starts shooting and they turn around and say it was amazing, I'm like, but there was already bullet holes there. Did you catch that there was bullet holes before he came out of the bathroom shooting? No, I never looked. I didn't either. No, I never noticed that. I did notice that they emptied their clips into Brett, so their guns should have been empty before they quickly fire back at the guy jumping out of the bathroom. So, yeah, they go into the car, and this has to be one of the funniest bits in the entire film. Uh, I was laughing so hard. Um, The dialogue between, you know, they're still talking about whether or not this was an act of God, and uh, Jules is adamant that this was a miracle, and he wants you to fucking acknowledge it. And they're talking about it. And Vincent turns around and says, Marvin, what do you make of all this? Marvin says, man, I ain't even got an opinion. And then we cut back to Travolta. You got to have an opinion. What you think God just came down and magically stopped the bullets? And then his gun goes off. And it was just, you just see the explosion against the back of the windshield. And it, you know, when you first see it, you like them in the car, you go, oh, right. And then just the the way they play it off is so funny. That line, the delivery from Travolta, he said like he was trying to get into his character. Like, how do I deliver this line? Like, on at face value, it's a horrific thing. It's horrible. He just blasted a guy in the face. And there's viscera everywhere. And John Travolta said he knew he had to say it funny or he wouldn't get through it. Yeah. Oh, shot Marvin in the face. Yeah, it's so good. So, yeah, now they're in trouble. Right, they're driving around LA in the middle of the day, actually in the morning, covered yeah. in blood, covered yeah. in blood, eight o'clock in the morning. So they they call Jules's partner Jimmy, who was played by Quentin Tarantino. They pull into his house, and outside of Tarantino using the N word in this, this is probably some of the funniest dialogue. It is great seeing these characters come from a situation where they're in complete control of the room and everything that's happening, and then they're thrust into this situation where. You almost see him panic because they are exposed. They are vulnerable. They just killed somebody. They didn't mean to. And they have no idea where the fuck they are. So they go to Jimmy's and the whole bit with, you know, you got to call your people. You don't want to fuck my shit up. You're fucking my shit up right now. Do you see the sign in my yard? Oh, yeah. Well, sign above my garage specifically. I think it was. Jimmy is clearly upset. He's kind of a disgusting character. Uh, I love the shift when we transition to the next part of this scene when the, the wolf. wolf. Yeah. So they're at Jimmy's house and Vincent calls his people, which is Marcellus. And I love the interaction between the uh, Marcellus and Jules, right? Marcellus eventually tells him that the wolf is coming and it's Harvey Keitel. And uh, I like he, we cut to a cocktail party at, we have to assume at eight o'clock in the morning. So Bonnie Actually, gets home at nine 30. It was I mean, gambling. Oh, was that what it was? Yeah. Yeah. You hear him about passing the shoe, and uh, you also hear uh, uh, some other uh, reference made to gambling. But yeah, it's eight o'clock in the morning. And they're all dressed to the nines. He's on the phone. He's getting the names of the participants. He's 30 minutes away. I'll be there in 10. Did you see that he's noting people's race yes. as he's writing yeah. it down? Black, white. Yeah. Yeah. So he knows, you know, when he gets there. The interaction with you know, the wolf coming in and. Vincent saying to him, you could say, please, I I know that we knew that's not where Vincent dies, but I thought, oh my God, something's about to happen to him. Yeah. And it's funny because the look that Jules gives him, like, are you out of your fucking mind? What did we just talk about? Right. Um, The way that, that Harvey Cartel's character handled that 
you know, he didn't, you know, get upset. He didn't like blow his lid. He just kind of, you could tell he was stressed and that he wanted to get things done and wanted everybody just to do what he said, but he kept it on a level that I thought was interesting. Yeah. I mean, he's calm, cool, and collected. And this is also the bit where uh, he takes a drink of coffee and he looks at Jimmy and nods because, mm. well, he buys the expensive gourmet shit. It is interesting to see Jimmy's change in his personality. He's very fucking pissed when it's just him, Jules, and Vincent. And then when the wolf shows up, obviously he knows he's, this guy's going to get them out of the situation. So he should be nice to him, but he's extremely nice. He's very, very nice to the wolf. So wolf's polite demeanor is uh, it's very, very fun to watch how effective he is and and how calm cool and collected as you just said he he is and i dug how when vincent uh confronts him about the manners bit uh left frame you have vincent and he is in light and then right frame you have well not not right frame but probably center frame you have uh jules with his arms folded in the doorway and so he looks relaxed and then um, we, we can see that, uh, that uh, he, uh, Vincent continues to stay in, in light in the next shot after uh, the wolf says something else. And then we come back and Jules, he's ready to walk out the door and Vincent speaks up and then Jules comes back in, but he walks into a shadow. So he stays in the dark and Vincent stays, you know, well lit throughout both of these camera shots and and i dug that style because it was telling us that our attention is supposed to be on vincent and i loved having the the polite but curt comments that the wolf makes back to him and it was i i just thought it's for such a simple little scene it was so fun to see that little exchange yeah yeah i love that you bring up the lighting i we would be remiss if we didn't even just mention it. I feel like throughout the entire film, I love the way he plays with the light. I love when we get close-up shots of these characters. Their faces look like they're glowing almost. It's fascinating. I, I like the way he uses his camera and the lighting together to to really illuminate these stars. Sure. Yeah, sure. There, there are several of our characters sprinkled throughout where um, there are multiple uh, light angles on them, so they are uh, well. They are very well lit. I can't think of another shot or really just a film in general where Sam Jackson looks so good. He looks so handsome, especially those close-ups in the diner at the end. Yeah. He looks great. Yeah, completely. So the wolf comes to the rescue. They are, are able to disguise the car. Uh, they get all of the bloody clothes, put it in the trunk and they're going to take it to monster uh, Joe's monster truck and tow to get rid of the body. So they do that. Well, first we see them get cleaned up with the hose. Yes. And then, oh, there's their outfits. Okay. They get rid of the body, and that is it for Winston Wolf. Came in, saved the day, took off. So Jules and Vincent decide to go have breakfast, and we are now in the same diner that we opened the film with, and everything comes full circle. And this bit here... I thought was absolutely brilliant too. The only thing that takes me out is that Amanda Plummer delivers the line two different ways from the beginning and, uh, yeah. and the end here. And it's slightly different. Did, did you read what Quentin Tarantino responded to that? Why that happened? No. Why? He said that 
there are two different viewpoints in this movie. The first are from Pumpkin and Honey Bunny. And so the other second one is actual Jules' recollection of that scene. So he heard it differently. That doesn't make any sense. I think, again, it's just him covering for the goof. Yeah, well, yeah, that's exactly what it is. But when you're Quentin Tarantino, I guess you can do that. Sure, why not? Yeah, so Honey Bunny and Pumpkin are robbing the diner, and they come up to Jules's character. Uh, Vincent has excused himself to take a shit. And some of this dialogue between, uh, even before Pumpkin walks up, the dialogue between uh, Jules and Vincent, Jules is done. He is going to walk away. He's going to deliver the case to Marcellus, and then he's going to quit. And I love the bit where uh, Travolta says, well, what are you going to do? He goes, well, I'm just going to walk the earth until God puts me where he wants, like King from Kung Fu. So the robbery is in progress, and Pumpkin comes over and asks... uh, What's in the case? You know, he distracts him by opening it up, and Jules gets the upper hand, pulls him down, and he doesn't want to kill him. He wants to talk to him. He wants to save him. And this is the arc uh, that has been leading up for Jules' character because he doesn't want to be a, a mindless killer anymore. He wants to he wants to walk away from the life. And I think he just wants someone to talk to. And uh, this whole bit between these two, Tim Roth and Samuel L. Jackson, again, just fucking brilliant. So when Ringo first sits down, it certainly lightens the tension somewhat. I'm still expecting Jules to blow his head off here at some point or for their... Something to go wrong. You don't know what's going to happen next, and we're just kind of waiting to hear what Jules has to say. And we get uh, everything that he does say, and then Vincent walks out, and it becomes like a a Mexican standoff. And so uh, Jules tells uh, Ringo, you know, you can have the money, you can have the wallets, you can have, but you can't have the case because it's not mine to give you, and you know, whatever. And he goes, go into the bag and get me my wallet. And he says, how do I know which one it is? And he, and Jewel says, it's the one that says bad motherfucker on it. And sure enough, the wallet says bad motherfucker on it, which incidentally was Quentin Tarantino's wallet. Uh, he comes out, he gives him $1,500 and he says, he's not giving it to him. He's buying something and he's buying his life because this means that Jules doesn't have to kill him, which I thought is really kind of the turn. You know what I mean? So, yeah, great scene. Great scene. One of the things I really appreciated about this scene was you kind of talked about the dialogue that Jules gives. And I love, it's almost like a self-reflection uh, of, you know, he talks about how I always went into these scenes and I recited these lines and I wanted to look like a badass motherfucker and I wanted to scare people. So I would recite this line from this Bible, but I never thought about the line, what it meant. And he says, and talking about walking the path of redemption and everything like that. And I love that just whole self-reflection in that you can see the change happening like you were talking about. Yeah. 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 I, just, I just dug the camera work that we have in this. Specifically, it's what we get when we are looking at Jules when he has the gun up. And there's a, there's a couple of really, really great shots where we have uh, Jules in left frame and the gun in right frame. And then the next shot is... We have a pumpkin in right frame and Jules's gun in left frame. And then we're back to looking at both of them again. I, I just really dug the way Quentin moved the camera around for this. It is so interesting how menacing that Jules comes across when we are looking at Jules pointing the gun, not at us, but, you know, at, at, uh, at pumpkin. Oh my gosh, he, 
he looks so terrifying. That might be the best character development in the entirety of the film. Oh, well, it's the only character. Talk about redemption. I heard in a behind-the-scenes segment that um, the diner scene was one of the first that they filmed, and someone came up to Sam Jackson after they shot those scenes, and they said, hey, now we have the ending of our movie. We didn't know what it was going to be until we heard you deliver those lines, and that's going to be it. Yeah, And sure enough, it was. So uh, he lets Pumpkin and Honey Bunny go with all of the wallets. He, uh, Jules and Vincent take the case. They are going to take it to Marcellus, and that's the end of Pulp Fiction. But I love the way that they swagger out. Oh, absolutely. And then the song that plays with it, and yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I know. It it was kind of funny for me to see them swagger out wearing those shorts. With their pistols tucked in the waistband. Mm -hmm. The relationship between Vincent and Mia, I feel like, is my favorite aspect of the film. Uh, Obviously, we talked about the power dynamic, uh, how things play out between them, the way that... As with all other situations, things go critically awry. I like the way they teased out the will they, won't they between them. There is some tension. There is clearly an attraction. There's a lot of romance between these characters. But ultimately, like I mentioned before, it seems like Marcellus and perhaps Mia as well are, they have a vision for Vincent. They're, he just came back from Amsterdam. They're trying to get closer to him. It seems like they have a very close relationship, Vincent and Marcellus. So my impression is that whatever Ma- Marcellus has in mind for Vincent, he wants Mia to meet him and he wants her feedback on what she thinks of Vincent as well. Clearly through watching Vincent in the bathroom, he's he's trying to convince himself, no, this is a platonic relationship. I'm not going to do anything over the line with this woman. There's really not much more to read into that other than I saw that the book that he was reading throughout the movie, uh, Vincent was reading Modesty Blaze, and I never heard of it before, but it was an old comic, and apparently uh, Modesty has a completely platonic relationship with another male within the story. She's the head of a massive crime syndicate. People speculate on her relationship with this person, but it is strictly platonic. So I have a feeling that maybe Vince was reading into this character to see, okay, what does a platonic relationship between a woman in power and a man below her look like? Yeah, interesting. Interesting. <clears throat> Speaking of Vincent and Mia, what was your favorite story? For me, I mean, it had to be uh, Vincent and Marcellus's wife. Uh, Mia's my favorite character. I love watching those two actors on screen together. There's so many great bits within that span of the movie. So hands down, uh, Vincent and Marcellus's wife. Nice. Professor? I'm torn between uh, the first and the third. I really, really enjoy the, the Bonnie situation. It, it's It's really fun watching that whole bit. And the fact that you get that that epiphany of... My story arc is not linear. I guess I got to go with that. Yeah. yeah. I originally was going to say the prelude scene where they go into Brett's apartment and do the whole thing. But the more I think about it, I think my favorite scene is the epilogue, is that final diner scene and the dialogue and the change that we get from Jules. I, too, have to pick the Bonnie situation because of the Winston Wolf interaction. And then just the whole we get more Jules. Right, and we get his arc and uh, the conclusion of what it, what his character comes to. Uh, close second is the first one with Mia Wallace and Vincent, Marcella's wife. Yeah, absolutely, only and really because of the whole adrenaline shot thing. 
I think it's still one of the most intense scenes ever to be put on film. The one shot that stands out to me above any other is the scene when Winston is in the house. They're discussing the Bonnie situation, and we have what I believe may be the only imaginary sequence that we see play out visually. Maybe you could consider Butch's dream to be imaginary, but specifically the shot is Winston is saying, so it would be bad if Bonnie were to come home and find us like this. And we see a shot of Bonnie come home. She's in her nurse's outfit. We follow her in. We follow her in. And it is funny. She comes into the kitchen and they're (gasps) actively moving the body. There's no dialogue. It's just the the gasp. It's very, very funny. Um, It stood out to me, A, that uh, Bonnie is African-American. She's black skin. uh, Contrasted with Tarantino, Jimmy, her her husband, dropping gratuitous language previously. Uh, I thought that was interesting. So in my head, I was like, is this Winston's vision of what Bonnie would look like? I doubt that Winston would view her as a black woman if she had heard the language Jimmy was throwing around before he came into the house. Um, but there was no other shot in the movie similar to this one. I did hear, interestingly enough, Sam Jackson said, they were going to film a sequence in the diner where Jules kills Honey Bunny and Pumpkin. He was going to film it. Tarantino decided not to, and he said specifically if they shot it, he would have to keep it in the film. Yeah, interesting. All right, so uh, what do you guys think? You guys ready to rate this bitch? Not quite yet. Oh. And now it's time for John's... moment okay so as people know i like to take out the movies that we view and relate them back to lord of the rings because well everything relates back to lord of the rings for this movie i'm going to start with what is the one ring in pulp fiction it's the barrier that keeps a person from completing their quest the corruption comes from their lifestyle and their life choices their journey could save their world based on the choices they make Pulp Fiction is essentially the story of three men, Jules, Vincent, and Butch. Each are presented with choices on their journey where their values of life and death, honor and disgrace are challenged. Each one has their own form of the one ring. For Vincent, it's heroin and his inability to grow beyond his current role. For Butch, it's his ability to make bad choices like breaking the deal with Wallace or going back for the gold watch. And for Jules, it's the life of a criminal. Each one are forced to make a life-altering choice, which in the end could spell disaster. Only one of them actually casts off the ring of power by the end of the movie, which is Jules. So who is Frodo? Vincent could have been a Frodo, except he never tried to destroy the ring. He liked his lifestyle, even though it was destroying him. As a hobbit, he would have just waited for the Shire to burn. In many ways, Vincent is more like Gollum, as his own vices prevented him from letting go of his precious and ultimately led to his death. As Butch's journey progressed, I see him closer to the role of Bilbo Baggins. Like Bilbo, he goes from a robber to a hero when he makes the choice to stay and fight. But in the end, he keeps the ring or the watch, and is unable to cast off its corruption. His story is left unfinished, and we never know if he finds salvation or redemption. 
Jules, in the end, was able to break the ring's hold on him and cast it off into Mount Doom. Like Frodo, it took the intervention of others to help him finally destroy the ring and find redemption. Each has their moment at Mount Doom, standing on the edge, overlooking that fiery magma below. For Vincent, it was Mia's overdose. For Butch, it was deciding to go back for the watch when he could have just walked away. And for Jules, it was the choice whether to kill Pumpkin and Honey Bunny or let them go. Only one of them was actually able to complete the Fellowship's mission. What you got? I'm going to give that a solid C-. minus. Daniel, you're not going to hurt his feeling. I love Lord of the Rings. It's one of my favorite things ever. I put it up there with Star Wars, and you know how much of a Star Wars fan I am. I, so I do. I love that you tried to do that tried but i i i just didn't see the connections that was a, a lot of stretching there were some moments where i i guess i could see the parallels or the connections there but th- there was a lot of stretching there <laughs> what's your grade <laughs> like you said, looking i'm looking this way you can say whatever your grade is <laughs> I, I, I mean i guess a, a d I, I don't know if it passes man you need to go to summer school my man I'm going to give you a C just for all of the effort you put into that. There was good effort. And that was John's. Moment. All right, what do you guys think? Is it time to rate this bitch? Let's rate this bitch. Hey, Professor, how do we do our ratings? We do our ratings on a scale of one to five fucks. Five fucks is a movie that is cinematic gold. You are ready to watch this movie anytime. You want to turn that on? Yes, I do. A one fuck movie is a movie where you've seen it, you're one and done, and you know what? It's You don't need to see it again. It's You're done. And what's a zero? A zero is somebody owes me two hours of my life back and in other words we just don't give a fuck all right who wants to go first i'll go first all right professor hit it pulp fiction is a movie that i think is one of my favorites and it is a movie that i prefer not to watch very much because i want to savor every minute of it and i don't want to have it get watered down if you will by having it being viewed too much to not have not not to be able to uh, appreciate the impact of what is happening i think that this movie is written brilliantly the the writing that our characters have is incredible and what is amazing and so effective about this writing is that you have these seemingly go nowhere conversations that happen the the bit at the beginning you know when we hear about uh vincent's trip to amsterdam their conversation again at the end of the movie about wanting bacon and it turns out that jules has a a reasonable reason why he doesn't like to eat bacon having these mundane conversations that don't seem to mean that much actually make us look at people that have gunned down other people in cold blood murdered them and yet at the end of the movie we don't necessarily look at them as bad people necessarily, that we still feel these guys are okay. How does that happen unless you had an opportunity to get to know these guys? And I felt like that's what the writing has done in the movie for me. I am loving how Quentin shoots this movie. His camera work is beautifully done. I love 
all of these little moments that he gives us to show things just a little bit differently. The fact that he doesn't tell the story in a linear fashion blew my mind, and it was delightful to have that to turn over in my head days after seeing the movie. So so then that happened, and then that, I loved that. It stayed with me thinking about having the story being told in that way because I didn't remember ever seeing another story like that that just turned it around in such a unique way that it's a big gotcha when that happened. I was floored by that. I dug the music. The music made the movie a lot of fun. And as horrifying as some of this stuff is, it also works on other levels with, you know, just how funny some of these times in in, in the movie are. I loved Mia Wallace. Oh my gosh. You know, watching her and Vincent together, I, 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 I so dug their chemistry that they had with each other. The overdose scene unbelievable just incredible and when i put all this together and i think about you know uh, other movies I, I i just can't help but think that this movie is on just about anybody's top 100 of all time movie lists i have to give this movie five solid fucks five fucks from the professor that's two weeks in a row right yes you, sir. Gave, you gave good fellows yes sir yeah. candy store is open folks you like me to go next yes sir Sure thing. With Pulp Fiction, Tarantino has created his own Greek tragedy where the main characters bring doom upon themselves, whether it's Vincent's heroin addiction, Butch's crossing Wallace, Mia's drug issues, Wallace's drive for revenge, Pumpkin and Honey's holdup. Each set themselves on a path of destruction and doom. Only one character throughout the whole movie was able to turn off that path, Jules. The message and the intent by, of Quentin Tarantino was clear with the way he made this movie. Understanding this theme makes the movie easier to follow with its intersecting stories and nonlinear timeline. The dialogue is pure Tarantino, which is something I always love. The fact that he was able to pull such amazing performances out of Travolta, Willis, Jackson and Thurman is, is again, just a credit to Tarantino. By far, this is one of my favorite Samuel L. Jackson performances, and that includes his Marvel appearances. My only complaint that I have about this movie is, again, I'm not a fan of the non-linear timeline design that he set up this movie. I know that's a big, you know, like for a lot of other people. It, it just doesn't work as well for me. Technically speaking, though, I love the camera angles. I love the effects. The dialogue kept me engaged and entertained. Overall, great movie. I would be up for watching this movie again, but I don't know if I'd go actively looking for it. I would recommend this to anybody who loves uh, you know, any Quentin Tarantino movies, but for folks who aren't into heavy violence or offensive language, I'd tell them to avoid it. So for me, this movie gets a solid 4.25 fucks. Well, there you go. 4.25 fucks from the comic book guy and five fucks from the professor. Uh, what can I say that we haven't already said at nauseum uh, during this podcast? I will just say this. This movie had a profound effect on me. Uh, my brother Eric and I to this day still quote Pulp Fiction to each other. Um, what I liked about this film was the cast. They were dynamic. I would dare say that this film was perfectly cast. 
The story was so well written and extremely smart, sometimes confusing. The story takes lefts and rights and that keeps us on our toes and in the end wraps it all up completely. The soundtrack, I had this soundtrack on heavy rotation back in the day. I could, uh, I would wake up listening to the soundtrack. I would go to sleep listening to the soundtrack. Uh, the filmmakers, Quentin Tarantino and his editor, Sally Minke, created and stitched together something special, a trend that would go on to continue for many more Quentin Tarantino films. Coming in at 2 hours and 34 minutes, for the most part, this film flows very well and the runtime is barely noticeable. However, for me, when we get to Fabian and Butch, it just kind of drags and it kills the vibe of the film for me if i'm watching pulp fiction and i stumble onto this scene i'll turn the channel so but if it's any other scene i'll watch it why because i mean i've been quoting this movie since 1994 uh so all of that being said i'm going to give pulp fiction 4.75 fucks right on there you go bitches all right little one i'm glad that you guys went first I will echo Don's entry into his review and say there's nothing that I could say that we haven't already said that anyone has ever said about this movie. I love it. It was extremely well written. The actors say the dialogue is just incredible. Obviously, it took them to say the lines, but Tarantino has a way of writing dialogue that people seem to resonate with. Music, I was listening to the soundtrack on the way over here. I had to. It got me in the mood. I agree with what the professor said that, you know, I don't want to watch it too much to take away the magic of the film. I watched it three times this week. I overprepared. And by the third time, I did kind of start to nitpick little things and like kind of see the actors instead of the characters. So uh, I don't think I'll be watching this movie for a while to kind of let it simmer. I will always have the most positive opinion about every aspect of this movie i love it i will watch it but this is one of those movies that i would consider per your review criteria one that i would watch anytime if it's on i'll watch it so i'll just simply say five fucks baby let's go all right uh now comes the time of the podcast where we would select our next movie and if you want to know what movie we will be reviewing next be sure to check out our website and any of our social media sites uh speaking of which hey john where can they find us if you want easy access to our podcast show notes movie trivia or whatever else we tend to include go check out our website at www.3guysataflick.com we're also available on all the social media and podcasting hosting sites. All right. So that is going to wrap it up for this episode of Three Guys in a Flick. I just want to thank Zach, Ronnie, and Jill for listening. Keep on listening. I especially want to thank Danny for coming out and talking a little bit of Pulp Fiction with us. Uh, did you have a good time? I had a great time. Yeah? yeah. I had an awesome time. Well, this is my first time recording, and I hope to do it again someday. Well, you now have a seat at the table here at Three Guys in a Flick. I think he has graduated, and he no longer has to wear the gimp outfit for the podcast. Uh, no, I want to keep him in the gimp outfit because, well, he's our gimp. Can you just unzip my mouth while we're recording? Yeah, well, we'll see. We'll see. All right. So, for Three Guys in a Flick, I'm Don. I'm John. I'm Ken. And I'm Danny. Thanks for listening.
It was a fucking miracle, and I want you to acknowledge it. And making his first public appearance on our show, this is Dan. Me. Dan. Me. Yeah, I know. Well, do you want... That's Danny, right? It, I'm just it is again. pronounced Danny. Yes, yeah, that's you. correct. Thank you, fuckface. But if something starts going wrong with you, Don, if you start coughing or anything, I'm going to stab you in the chest. Do you got to stab me three times? Pretty please. With sugar on top. Clean the fucking car. I learned this week that you never search for the words nubbin lovin why would you get amputee sex foreshadowing your favorite word your favorite word my favorite word is foreplay it's okay danny you can laugh i don't think there was any foreplay in the basement spoiler alert do you want to talk about every foot in the movie (laughs) do you do do you have a foot fetish well i'm starting to now get the shot get the shot well, he doesn't because care. I don't. Our think opinions you. I, don't matter. I, I don't. I don't care. I don't care. Um, well, none of you fucking answer. <laughs> I answer. Be cool, bitch. Tell that bitch to be cool. Bitch, be cool. <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake! You're starting to sound like this guy. I was gonna say, if you want to borrow my box of tissues later, you're more than welcome. Well, I'm just gonna go home and jerk off. So I could use those probably. <laughs> <And> that's <laughs> all you gonna do. <laughs> Let me ask you something. You ever give a foot massage? Shit, don't talk to me about no foot massage. I'm the foot fucking master. I got my technique down and everything. I don't be tickling or nothing. Did you give a man a foot massage? Fuck you. Okay, cool. Did you want to talk about how everything bad happens when Vincent goes to the bathroom? <laughs> I have notes on that as well. <laughs> Do you know why he goes to the bathroom? Because he has heroin shit. He's constipated from yeah. the heroin. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Fun fact. Wow. I'm fucking blown away people by are gonna you know what that. fucking podcast over but <laughs> i don't think it gets any better than that daniel good job buddy all right three hours and ten minutes fuck you fuck you and fuck you all right fuck off good night